Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, today on The Nose, this is Colin, by the way, uh, today on The Nose, we're going to talk about the fact that did you know that you can actually rent a theater at a multiplex for like about 100 bucks, maybe 150 bucks, and just watch a movie there with a few of your friends? We'll also talk about why we seek out in theater experiences like those. We'll also talk about whether actor Chris Pratt is entitled to his privately and quietly held political and religious beliefs. And lastly, we'll talk about American Utopia. That is the concert play film thing, hard to categorize, featuring the music of David Byrne. It's all coming up after the news. It's the end of the week, uh, and it's time to do the nose. Uh, we are going to talk today about the fact that you can rent. This is sort of how bad the theater business is, the movie theater business. You can now rent um, a multiplex, uh, I don't know what they're called, but a theater anyway, at a multiplex for, you know, not insane prices, uh, particularly when you think about how much snacks cost ordinarily, uh, and, uh, and then watch a movie with 20 or fewer of your friends. We'll also talk about whether or not actor Chris Pratt uh, has a right to have privately and mostly quietly held political and religious beliefs, whether his actor friends should defend him when there's sort of a pseudo cancellation of him on social media. And then we are going to talk about American Utopia, which, of course, is a staged version of the music of David Byrne featuring David Byrne in a cast, a multinational cast of um, very adept musicians. Uh, so more more to say about that when we get there. Who are we going to talk about all this stuff with? I'm glad you asked. Tanisha Dugan is producer, producing associate at Theater Works. Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. They are our guests today, our panelists. Um, so let's just begin with this. Yes, uh, AMC allows rentals of up to 20 people uh, at, at movie theaters. Uh, the rates start at 99 but can float upwards depending on, uh, that's $99, uh, um, including tax and stuff like that, uh, but but float up depending on what you want to watch and what else you want to have going on there. Uh, it seems also there's some other theaters around the state where you can do that. Um, and I have to say that for us on the nose, we've wanted to have a conversation about the movie Tenet. You can only only see it in movie theaters. I'm thinking, I don't know, how much would it cost us just to rent a place and have the nose panelists uh, and Jonathan McPants all watch it together? So, but I want to hear from you guys. And Tanisha, I think I want to start with you just because obviously you are uh, involved in another part of this world, but the same question of sort of, you know, the circumstances under which we can get people to gather in a room with many seats to watch something uh, taking place before them. It's it, it's both sad and kind of inviting that movie theaters are forced to do this. But does this tempt you at all? Well, I am tempted by the idea that we would all collectively watch a nose 
topic together. That actually intrigues me. Uh, so I think to point out, we did that the first time you were ever on the nose, I believe, you came to my house and watched yes! Snowpiercer with a few other nose panelists. Anyway, continue. It's so good. And, it, you know, it's sort of in real life what we do via email can like bubble up. All of that to say, I am uh, not really a movie theater goer. Whenever you we are uh, charged with watching something that's in the theaters, I'm always like, Ugh, I've got to find time. And it's got to be the time that they're playing it. Um, so I guess the rental thing uh, is intriguing because I guess I could pick my own time. But at that point, it's sort of like just watch it at home. <laughs> the only kind of movie theater that I do like or that I liked when we could go to movie theaters were uh, the ones like, is it called Cinemark? The one in um, Blueback Square. But, you know, I like the whole bring me my drink, bring me my food, touch a button, you know, the service while the movie's happening. That was an incredible innovation within movie theater world that I will gladly uh, return to at some point in the future. Um, but as it relates to movies in particular, I could I could take it or leave it. The movie right. theater. I hate that whole idea of the. I haven't been to Cinemark. You and I don't have a great future going to the movies together, because uh, like people like you know getting food and stuff like that. I don't. I don't like that at all. So, but, but Bill, there, there is. You know, it's interesting because we're going to be talking about American Utopia a little bit later. The last time Stop Making Sense uh, played at Trinity on James Hanley's beautiful screen with his great audio equipment, I made a point of going there. Because I really wanted to see it, you know, in a theater with some other people who were reacting to it uh, uh, up on a, you know, big, huge screen in the darkness. There is something we get out of this that we just can't get from our home theaters. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think there is. I think it's it is a very different experience. I have to say, for me, I am both intrigued but also scared by this idea. So I've kind of on my own tried to do this kind of thing informally long before COVID came. And my version of this was trying to go to the movies at like nine o'clock on a Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was my effort to rent the theater just for myself. So I wouldn't have to deal with all those other annoying people on their cell phones and talking to each other and all that stuff that I admit I have very low tolerance for. So the idea of doing it is somewhat intriguing for me. Um, my own like personal little COVID bubble is very small. It's like six people, but you know, depending upon how much it costs, that wouldn't be much more than um you know just buying tickets right. in 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 previous days for six people but i have to say i'm also really really averse about going into public spaces these days so i'm i'm torn um i'm intrigued by it i think you know you touched on it's got to be the right content so something like a, a really good concert film or like a really, you know, kind of amazing, like 2001, a space odyssey, something like that would be intriguing. And I really, really want to support the movie theater industry. I don't want to see movie theaters go away. I think that's really an important thing to preserve, but I'm also a little wary of, of doing it at the same time. 
uh, information coming in from Jonathan McPants. Uh, first of all, they're going to love you if you want to rent the thing at 9 a.m. because they they really they don't want right. to. They are showing movies at other times, so they uh, they love anybody mm-hmm. who wants to want mm-hmm. rent the theater when nobody else is there. They say they deep clean the theaters in between showings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, you know, Tanisha, I feel as Bill does. One of my fears is that between the rise of kind of home theaters and then the pandemic, the experience of going to the movie theater, which I now understand is not one that you necessarily cherish. Uh, you know, still, I would hate to see that go away. I mean, there are times when I find it burdensome to be around other people uh, in a movie theater, but there are other times when I find it in- indispensable. I-, I don't know. What are you What are you thinking about this? I'm thinking a couple things. One, which is I am worried um, that like all culture, um, it's all going to come at a premium. And so I think that's what the rental idea kind of concerns me about. Not that, I mean, you're right, Bill, like, you know, the cost of a movie ticket had gotten to be, you know, in some cases inaccessible anyway. So um, I may be splitting yeah. hair, but I think, I think the idea that, that now the movie theater experience is something that you have to purchase, uh, you know, in bulk just feels, um, uh, less plebeian than I think a movie should be. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what you said, Colin, about the sort of collective experience. And I think that there's something we need to continue to support collective experiences because we are already in a space where division and, and individualism mm-hmm. is so an extent in which it is it is really cutting at the fabric of our society so like having to deal with people in the movie theater and uh figuring out how to navigate your own discomfort anxiety or bliss is a part of learning how to be a member of a civilization um and just like you know doing it in a traditional you know theater theater with live performers um and 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 you learn how to do that in a a baseball stadium and in a football stadium you learn how to handle your gigantic excitement or utter rage uh appropriately around other people um and i think that's a skill that if we don't continue to support movie theaters and regular theaters and baseball stadiums and all of these sort of social gathering activities we're going to find ourselves in a lot more trouble than we're in today. Go ahead, Bill. I can tell you have something to say. Yeah, boy, I, I really think that's so important. What you just said there, Tanisha, you're right. You're right about that. And you know, all of that, that we already had even before COVID came different societies, you know, societies for, um, certain economic strata and then a completely different society. You know, you think about that film parasite that we talked about on the nose one week, um, and COVID has just made that even worse. So we're going to have more and more of these experiences that some people can have that other people just don't have access to, but that collectivity is really important and i know it works against the grain for my own individual dispensation i'm one of those people who you know that old phrase um i love humanity but i hate people um (laughs) that applies to me i think a little bit too much in my own life and i'm a little bit too prone to go into my little hermit thing uh, because of my own personal irritations but in 
when you look at it from that larger perspective that you brought, I completely agree that collective experiences like this are so important to the fabric of our society. Yeah, you know, the filmmaker, Gorman Bouchard, who's sometimes on the nose, um, he can beat you at this game, Bill. Uh, he can beat anybody. Gorman proudly would uh, tell you that he has been known on many occasions to tell the person behind him to chew the popcorn more quietly. Um, <laughs> so, and you know, it is, you know, yeah, hell is other people sometimes. And I do want to say that as we were getting ready for this, what I sent around at one point this thing from The Guardian where – you know, people mostly from the industry, uh, people like Tilda Swinton, you know, just talked about mm -hmm. their most or Emma Thompson talked about their favorite moment in a movie theater. You know, the thing that really just sort of converted them. Um, and I found myself thinking this is sort of a weird example because I don't like people talking in movie theaters either. I'm fairly fussy about that, too. But as a very young guy, I might have still been in college. I might have just been out of college. I was at a double feature Dirty Harry movie, uh, uh, or Dirty Harry double feature anyway, in New Haven, in a in a movie theater that was pretty well packed, and as far as I could tell, I was the only white member of the audience, uh, and as a result. I became aware of certain racial dynamics in Dirty Harry movies that might have kind yeah. of flown by me at that point in my life. And not only that, but, you know, there the audience was really talking back to the to the screen. And there was one guy who was really funny. I can't repeat any of the things that he said on the radio, <laughs> but like he would have the audience, including me, just convulsing. Um, but, but uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, that's not an experience I would seek out because I'm the same kind of fuss budget. On the other hand, it's not an experience I could easily do without. I mean, I kind of learned a whole bunch of things that day that had been sort of kept from me in my privileged white life where I probably just would have watched those movies and going, oh, that's pretty cool. So, so yeah, you know, Tanisha, we need each other uh, sometimes to be in the audience together. We do. And you can't really buy that. You surely can't rent that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, no. that's... Well, you could. That's you could You could pay $99 and have, you know, five people who are totally unlike you <laughs> go see the movie. But that yeah. would take a lot of planning. That would take a lot I of planning. I would go with the mannequins at that oh, point. Sorry. You know, I would go with the uh, baseball stadium mannequins. Uh, those Die Hard movies are uh, – not Die Hard. Those uh, Dirty Harry movies are incredibly racist. And um, there's, the, there's a, a British media scholar named John Fisk who um he wrote about this experience um seeing die hard somehow with like a group of homeless people who all cheered when um the police station got blown up mm -hmm. yes well but, you know you do you there's like other people are living different lives um, all right we have to shift gears here uh, if we're, we are to get to everything and this of course is of dire importance I'm being sarcastic, um, but uh, there was uh, one of those sort of little Twitter or large Twitter tempests in the Twitter teapot uh, this week. It started, as things do, with a tweet that shows showed famously the four Chris's of Hollywood. I hope I can do them off the top of my head. Chris Helms Hemsworth, Chris Pat Pratt, Chris Pine, uh, and which one am I forgetting about? Evans. Uh, Chris Evans. Chris okay. Evans. How, could How could I forget Chris Evans at this particular time? <laughs> so, uh, of these guys. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> so, and, the, and in the fashion of Twitter, it said one of them has to go, which one? And so then it turned out that, that Chris Pratt was the one that people were getting rid of. And then it turned out, I hope I'm reciting this all correctly, but um, 
that one of the reasons people were getting rid of Chris Pratt was not so much because of his acting, but because he apparently has these not very often spoken about, but possibly conservative political beliefs. And he definitely belongs to a church that is not cool about LGBT uh, people. Uh, and... And so that's another reason to not like them or rank them. And then I, I have to just tell the whole story here and then I'll let you guys talk. Uh, and then a lot of the people who've been in movies with Chris Pratt, including people who are real straight shooters. I mean, Mark Ruffalo uh, is just, you know, a very, very solid guy. They kind of came to his yeah. defense and said it wasn't really being fair and stuff like that. And um, Robert Downey Jr. and people like that. Uh, and then there was another iteration where apparently Brie Larson had endured much worse harassment on social media and no superheroes, no fellow superheroes had defended her and there bill i think my story ends there I, I, and there may be other points but my brain can't contain any more of this um yeah it, you know in some ways like it starts out as kind of a silly story but as you said uh if there's a chris that i want to go it would not be chris pratt it would be chris christie uh i would be very happy to see that chris go um, you know, Chris Pratt has kind of made this career playing goofy, nice guys, but who knows what he's really like, you know, per screen persona is not reality. But then, as you said, you know, it gets into something a little bit more serious about, of course, there's a double standard, right? Of course, there's a double standard in terms of how, um, white guys in Hollywood and everywhere else in our society are treated and how women and people of color are, are treated. You know, I, I mean, just look at the people emerging to defend Jeffrey Tubin right now. Um, some people I've seen on social media have pointed out if a woman did the things that Jeffrey Tubin did, like who would be there, you know, like defending that in any way. But, you know, personally, I could care less what church Chris Pratt goes to. I could care less who he's going to vote for. I It, it just seems kind of irrelevant to me. Mm -hmm. Tanisha, how about you? Well, I do care who he votes for because in this particular case we're living in, we keep trying to pretend like if you vote one direction, it doesn't actually mean you either uh, don't care about racism because you have the luxury to not care about racism or you are racist. So I feel like that's one of those, typically I don't care who you vote for. Typically I think those things uh, are just a, a small shade of who you are, but I think we're in a different moment uh, right now. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. Yeah. I, I will say, you know, what, is is sort of heartbreaking about this time right is that you can so easily quote unquote cancel i'm so sick of like even the word cancel at this point uh that the conversation like loses any nuance about like what human beings fully are and that some things about people you love some things about people you can't stand some things you feel meh about um and i kind of wish this is terrible to say, but there's a part of me that that longs for a kind of old Hollywood where everything we saw was a facade. This is this is the one <laughs> reason. I, the one reason. This is a reason why I appreciate Beyonce because the fact of the matter is we don't know that woman at all. That woman does not give us any kind of glimpse into her real life. She gives us that old Hollywood 
well-crafted version of who she is behind the camera. And there's a little bit of that that I um, I long for because I don't want to have, I, I, I'm kind of like you in some ways, right? I don't really care where he goes to church, although I wouldn't go there. I care how he treats his castmates and clearly he treats them well, which is why they came to their defense. Um, although Zoe Saldana, mm, I, I appreciate her, but she chose to be Nina Simone, right? Like, so... <laughs> there is some, some question about judgment in, in some of the crew that stepped up. Um, and and you're right, women women in the Marvel Universe did, don't get that same kind of uh, treatment and appreciation. They're constantly getting bagged and ragged about what they do, the costumes they wear, um, and we accept it. So th that's the real question. Like, will we continue to accept it? Will we say none of this really matters because it's silly, but, but it does elevate some other deeper things. I, I do think one distinction that I tried to make anyway, I mean, first of all, if as I said to you guys, if I had to think about Bruce Willis's politics all the time, it would actually deprive me of a lot of, <laughs> you know, lo, low brow enjoyment that Bruce Willis has provided me with. Uh, you know, and I think there is a distinction between guys who or people who kind of keep it under their hats a little bit. Uh, sometimes they're MAGA hats uh, and <laughs> and people who kind of hit you in the face with it. John Voight, I think, is, you know, uh, an example of a guy whose politics are really toxic and he's very out with them, as is James Woods. I actually still really loved Voight's performance in Ray Donovan. Of course, he was playing this kind of, you know, relentless sociopath in Ray Donovan. So, I mean, I guess I could sort of like piece it all together that way. But I do feel as though, you know, yeah, if somebody really is not putting it on the table or bothering people with it. You know, I wish he didn't go to the church he goes to. I went for a number of years to a church that was heavily populated by uh, LGBT people who had been driven out of evangelical churches and made to feel really bad about themselves and had found a, a different home. So I, I know how bad and toxic that can be. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm getting tired of purity tests. Yeah. <laughs> and let's be clear. I actually think that, you know, the culture industry needs to diversify its political leanings anyway. Like, I don't disagree that we also kind of uh, put forth a, a monolithic view of the world. And if we're going to be honest about the fullness of humanity, we need all the people in the mix uh, telling the stories and behind the camera so that we are actually having those conversations with each other with a Chris Pratt about like, so how do you, like, I, I, how'd you get that way? <laughs> like, is this the way that you grew up? Like, what is it? Um, because I think that's what makes us better as a, as a, as a body politic. Right. But you know, it's, we, we're a long way from opening our arms to conservatives. We surely aren't in a, in a place like, you know, if we're looking at Chris Pratt and, and, investigating where he went to church and, and using that as the, the delineation of whether or not he should be canceled or not. I think we should just go by cuteness. And well, I mean, he's not, he's maybe number three in that. <laughs> <laughs> Before we went on the air, Tanisha revealed she knew way more about who some of these people are married to and have been married to in the past than I ever would have guessed. Um, but a anyway. I mean, he's, to a, to, he's like married into the Kennedy family. So like, yeah. what does that even What's Thanksgiving like? <laughs> well, he's married into the Kennedy and Schwarzenegger family all at once. But... 
True, true. <laughs> you have no guarantee of what kind of Thanksgiving you're going to in any <laughs> given year uh, when you do that. But yeah, I don't know. I really like Chris Pratt. I enjoy him in Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought he was, you know, funny in Parks and Rec. And, you know, I really don't want to have to think about it much more than that. I don't think he's probably going to be in Schindler's List. You know, I mean, I don't think I don't think he's going to be in a piece of work. Schindler's I, List 2. Schindler's List 2. Yeah, we don't want that to happen anyway. But uh, no, but I just mean, I don't think he's probably going to be in a work where I have to really think hard about what his sensibilities are behind that role. But I also think Tanisha is making a very cool point, which is that ultimately, if you want to have, you know, I think about uh, Richard Nelson's Apple family plays and stuff like that. If you want to have theater where people are talking out their differences, but the cast is entirely monochromatic the minute the lights go down, then there's something probably a little bit off about that, that we probably do get richer and deeper into things if we, you know, are alongside people who don't think what we think. So I thought that was a very cool point by Tanisha. It takes the teeth out of out of our friends who say the, the media is left leaning. Right. Maybe that's. <laughs> right. Well, that's, yeah. that's an accomplishment. Well, you right know, there. part of the problem is just that phrase, the media. There is no, you know, I, I, I talk to students about this all the time. There is no media. Uh, you know, there are thousands and thousands of different iterations of media. And I, I also did agree with the thing that, that Tanisha said, though, also about, yeah, this election is different, though. I mean, you know, voting for Donald Trump, uh, I would argue, is not the same as voting for John McCain or even for like a Mitt Romney. But on the other hand, you know, if I have no idea who Pratt is going to vote for, but if he is someone who like is promoting Donald Trump, he's one of millions of people who are promoting and are going to vote for Donald Trump. And, and I, you know, as much as I would like to, I don't think we can, quote, cancel them all. Well, yeah, the thing, the point I, that I've made repeatedly since 2016 is, you know, somebody in your life who you kind of like who voted for Donald Trump. You just don't know whether it's the guy you really like at the auto body shop you go to every time your car has a dent in it or whether it's the person who does your hair uh, or whether it's, you know, it's, you know, people uh, who you like and have sort of genial exchanges with who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and might even do it again. Uh, but, you know, and the truth is that it just wouldn't make any sense for you to try to completely purify your life. Although I do actually know somebody who got a different hairdresser on that basis, but um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. That, I mean, yeah. We can't do that. <laughs> I mean, I would love to be like, yeah, we, we don't, you know, we have genial conversations with people and they're going to, to go that way. And, and that's okay. But I think there's actually a, a very dark party game to play, which is like, who's the new Schindler, right? Like it's not Schindler's list. Who is it? Mars yeah. list? Who who's it gonna be? I think you gotta like embrace the time for as crazy and history changing it is. And and I don't think we can you know, to, to, to Bill's point, this is not a Mitt Romney, this is not a John McCain, this is not a Ronald Reagan, this is not a George Bush, this is not that situation, and we can't um try to suggest it is because that feels much more comfortable than the actual moment we're in. Um, because it, it, my safety and my family's safety, that is like real and serious. And I don't think, I think in denying mm -hmm. the, the real deep, dark truth of the decision that people are making in this moment, 
is allowing people to skate on a decision that changed the history of Germany, right? Mm-hmm. Can change the history of America if we allow it. It's 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 real deep stuff. I like and, to swear, but I didn't. <laughs> thank thank you for not swearing. We're going to stop right there. Uh, Mr. McPants is telling us to break. We'll come back. We'll be talking about American Utopia. Chris. Chris, 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 Chris. That, of course, is This Must must Be the Place, parentheses, naive melody, close parentheses, which is David Byrne's exquisite and charming look at love and domesticity. It probably has some other very cerebral and possibly sinister undercurrent that I'm aware of, that I'm not aware of, but uh, it is uh, a very beautiful song. Uh, so, it, And it's part of American Utopia. You're actually hearing the American Utopia version, American Utopia, uh, which uh, toured around for a while, even played Wallingford, Connecticut, uh, and uh, then uh, launched itself in, uh, into the New York theater scene. Is a theater piece possibly a piece of performance art, possibly a concert. One of the things that might be interesting is to sort of even talk a little bit about the question of genre here. Uh, Not a lot of talking, uh, mostly singing with a very elite group of musicians, none of whom are fixed in place. Everybody is carrying um, pretty much all the time whatever it is that they're going to play. It's also an unusual chance to hear uh, Burns music with really terrific, beautiful harmonies, which are not usually part of the picture quite as much anyway. So um, there we go. Uh, and uh, I should tell you <laughs> going in here that our, our two panelists have very different sets of reactions to it. And, and I'm probably in, in yet a third corner of the triangle. So I think we should start, start with Bill Usman. Uh, Bill Usman was not going to let us do this show uh, without him being a panelist. And so let's hear why. So Jonathan brings in, you know, uh, this must be the place. And I'm sitting here in my house and my arms go up into the sky and my head starts bobbing, which I know is a very different reaction uh, than I'm getting from the two of you. If people could have seen our emails back and forth this week. I, ha- I have a gushing response to this show, I and I, I fully admit it. 
but but I should also admit, I think I'm kind of like the platonic ideal of an audience member for this show. Uh, Talking Heads emerged as a band when I was in high school. They made their best albums when I was in college, including a, one of which I think is one of the top five greatest rock albums ever, Remain in Light. And several songs from this uh, appear in American Utopia. So I'm a huge longtime fan. I'm also a big Spike Lee fan. I wrote a book about his movies. So bringing these two people together, I mean, this is, I was just, I was just primed for this. Um, I fully and completely admit it. And, and it didn't disappoint me. I sat with rapt attention with a big smile on my face, um, except for the emotional moments that, you know, really uh, hit hit with me including what i thought was the most spike lee moment of the show when um um, they cover a janelle monet song uh hell you tom bout which includes uh the repeated exhortation to say the names of the black people who have been killed by police and vigilantes and spike lee you you could tell it was him he brings this thing to it where you see pictures of their names being held up by in some cases their loved ones um that really hit very hard with me um the percussive music the minimalist yet high-tech aesthetic i think i'm going to stop talking now because you two are probably already sick of how much i love this show no we're not we I, like we like how much you love this show um, and, <laughs> you do yes and I, it's not a bunch of malarkey uh, well i mean i think we've all had different reactions to it but we love how much you love this show so tanisha mm-hmm. right. uh, let's hear your reaction to the <laughs> show <laughs> So I don't know if I'm playing the meh role or the I hated it role. So I'm going to step into <laughs> meh um, and see where you fall, Colin, and then I'll drastically move in one direction or the other. Um, and actually, you know, in prepping for our, our uh, chat today, I started to think about, you know, watching it with my children's father and my mother, who, you know, definitely had different responses to it. My mother, you know, was tapping along and was like really digging the music. Um, my children's father, who also is a Spike Lee fan, once I told him it was a Spike Lee uh, film, uh, he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And he kind of got into it, too, and then said to me, you know, that I don't feel like his voice, talking about David Byrne, his voice comes out of his 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 body. Like, you know, I feel like he's a, got a black man's voice, which... Of course, maybe you go, what in heaven's name are you talking about? That is so not true. <laughs> but he was like, but he's got some swag, doesn't he? And I was like, mm, I feel like this is Spike Lee talking. So I very much, you know, uh, appreciate. I, I knew I was going to watch it um, because it, it echoes the work that we're doing at Theater Works. And so it was as much a research activity, whether I was ha- coming on the radio with you all or not. Um, and I think it delivers as a uh, staged performance on the screen. And I think Spike is really good at that. I loved his um, Passover, Antoinette Nwandu's Passover that he did at Steppenwolf. Um, so I think Spike is just really good at capturing things on stage. Um, and I, I'm with Bill. I really dug the aesthetic and I thought there was a lot of lessons for me to take in about making these strong, striking visual statements um, that allow you to 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 
to sort of see something that's interesting um, while not being kind of overbearing or trying to be um, realistic or like a, a film or a TV show. Um, but I, you know, I, I can't really get into the music. I, unlike, um, my children's father do not love his voice. Uh, and I don't have any of the nostalgia of talking heads and the rest of it to kind of, um, get me into it. So I'm totally in the mix, but as a, as a, as like a study of theater and live performance for film, I think it's a really good case study. Yeah, and I, I, let me say this. I have a complicated relationship to all this stuff, too. By the way, as the host, Tanisha, I'm the one who has to. I have to adjust my position and frequently do okay. so that I provide, you know, maybe kind of a different different perspective. So um, I was a rock critic and, as I've said many times, the worst rock critic in America uh, at the time that more songs <laughs> about buildings and food, uh, which is kind of their first big statement album, uh, came out. Uh, so I've been around this for a while. I don't think I I didn't I did never understood anything when I was a rock critic. I probably didn't understand that album either. I've actually seen another Burn stage show. It is uh, Here Lies Love, which is about Imelda Marcos. Uh, it's a stage show that you had to watch standing up at the public and you got shooed around in different directions, which led to us, uh, the, uh, my, m- me and my companion, uh, standing right next to David Byrne, who was there taking notes on his own production uh, at one moment. But, you know, like Tanisha, I have never liked his voice. And and I mean, just the timber of the voice. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, it grates on me. Uh, I know people I worship Elvis Costello. I know people who can't stand the sound of his voice. So this is just something that maybe you it's just a personal thing that you get can't get past. So I, I found that I could watch about a half an hour of this and then I needed a break a 24-hour break, and then I came back. I watched the second half. I liked the second half better. I might have been in a better mood at that point. And yeah, uh, when you get to Hell You Tom Bout at the end, uh, it, it is powerful. No matter how what you felt about everything that came before that, uh, it's it's pretty powerful. Um, but I, I do I do find, well, we had a lot of interesting things to say as we were kind of getting ready for this. But Bill, I'd like to begin just by asking, one of the arguments that is made about this is that it's not really a concert film the way uh, Stop Making Sense was, that it's something else. And and I think because there's so little spoken word in this, mostly your whatever connections you're going to make, you're going to have to make on your own. It almost falls a little bit into the category of performance art uh, mm-hmm. as well as being all these other things. But, I mean, could you make the case that there is some kind of intellectual or narrative through line going through all this that we'd have a takeaway somehow? I can try. I'm not Irene Papoulis, <laughs> right, but um, I, I could bring up Die Hard and Bruce Willis again mm-hmm. and somehow, but I'm not going to try to do that. Um, so I think, yeah, it's... So my wife is also not a Talking Heads fan. She watched it with me because she's a good person. Um, but... Um, So it didn't, you know, it didn't have the resonance with her. And the other thing she said to me is, um, and we've talked about this before, she really likes narrative. She really likes a narrative story. And it, I do think there is one, but it's, it's thin. It's admittedly it's thin. What I would say is, so he starts with, you know, he's like this scientist sitting at this desk, holding a model of a brain in his hand. I know that sounds really weird. And he's talking about the interconnected tissues of our brains. And I think by the time we get to the end, he's talking about the connective tissues of our society. 
and how if we don't nurture those connected tissues of our society, we are in really big trouble um, as as human beings, as as a culture. So I see it as a a very human and a very humane show uh, that hides like a really big heart beneath you know, maybe colder vocals or, or colder visuals, but it is about, you know, forging connections. It's about reaching across. Um, just, just quickly, I, I'll say just one more thing about that before Tanisha jumps in, but the title American utopia, uh, utopia literally meaning no place. It's always an aspirational idea. And here whether it's intended or not, I see the title as a rejection of the Trumpian, you know, evocation of American carnage during his inauguration. Um, you, American utopia is the reverse of American carnage. It's let's strive to be what we could possibly see. It's a multicultural rejection of all of that meanness and that America firstness. Um, and, you know, I, I, I drew a lot out of it from it, but, but I do think it's there. I don't think I'm just laying that on there as a narrative. Tanisha, I, I want to get your reactions, but I also am also thinking is, first of all, I thought that was really good. It's a good explanation. But, um, you know, there's a way in which I think the whole thing is set up too, aesthetically, visually. I mean, even the fact that they're all in gray suits, which is not a big departure for the talking head uh, aesthetic, but they're all in gray suits with bare feet. And there's a lot of sort of grayness in the background, too. And there's a sense that maybe you are at liberty to make your own projections, make your own interpretations. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so if the father of Tanisha's children wants to say, wow, he sounds like Sam Cooke. Well, I don't really get that. But, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, that you know, Good that's. Point. That's where he is right now. And Tanisha, I'm wondering where, whether as a piece of art, it's intentionally rigged up that way. I do, you know, and, and maybe because I watched it intermittently like you, Colin, I was I actually thought it was uh, narrative um, or rather, I guess I could I could plot the points of 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 the story arc across it. And I do think that, you know the the reveal um or the revelation of um Janelle Monet's song and his his framing of it right i asked her if it was okay yeah. to do this he wrote for uh the women's the women's march no it was after that it was, uh, it was 20, after the, it was 2015 uh is when the, the song came out i believe um and you know she and Janelle's response was absolutely this is for everybody um, and then staging mm-hmm. that piece in which David really takes a back seat um, to the ensemble, yeah. right? Um, and I think, you know, that journey does start with, here's your brain. Here's your brain on the story of imperialism. Here's your, your brain on the story of colonialism. Here's your brain mm-hmm. on American dreaming, right? Like that to me feels like the the narrative arc and, and that you can plot that, that journey across till we get to the end of, of um, the, the project. Um, I don't even remember what your question was, Colin. I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> it doesn't I wanted matter. To do <laughs> I only ask questions to get people to just say whatever they want to say anyway. So uh, <laughs> we're, we are kind of running out of time here. I mean, I think all of us 
although yeah tanisha and i were perhaps less rapturous about this than uh bill uh for our various reasons but i think all three of us would say you should probably watch this i mean you have the slightest bit of interest i i do believe that as a live performance i would have had a much stronger reaction a positive reaction to it than i did uh and you know when it's it's up on stage uh i would i well i know you you're not really gonna pop for the ticket price there tanisha but (laughs) No, um, no, no. <laughs> um, but I think, I, but Tanisha, I, I think you agree. People should watch this just to get whatever they're going to get out of it, right? I, I mean, I totally recommended the project to my colleagues. You know, I, I said, Rob and Eric, you guys should watch this because I think it, it has a lot to offer us as a case study. I think any theater making practitioner should watch it, right? Um, because I think it's got a lot to offer us um, to consider. I don't. I I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> <You're interested. laughs> all right. So that's like we, we get like two and a half recommendations, not a, not a full three. Uh, all right. We're gonna take a break here. We'll go out with "Hell You Tom Bout," the Janelle Monae song that is nice. sort of the endpoint uh, of the uh, of the show. We are back. Uh, I should say that uh, as I get ready to say some thank yous and to shed some credits um, that we are very honored to have running the board today, uh, Gina Amatruda, who's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of uh, Connecticut Public. Uh, so, But Cat Pastor's getting some very, very well-earned time off. So both Gene and Katie Talarski have stepped in here to run the board for some of the shows. Very grateful for that. Grateful to uh, Jonathan McPants uh, for producing this particular episode. We're going to be back on Monday with a scramble, as long as Assuming we don't get preempted by some Amy Coney Barrett thing, which I can't guarantee. But if, we, if we're back, we're going to be there with the writer and political theorist Yasha Munk, who we've interviewed many times uh, in the past. So I hope you'll be there for that. And meanwhile, Tanisha Dugan and Bill Usman are on the show today. We're going to make some recommendations right now. Tanisha, why don't you get us going? I'll start. I'm sure someone else has endorsed this before, but I'm late to the game, so I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I'm going to shout out Parkville Market. Yeah. You know, I was totally a a disbeliever in the if you build it they will come model um and carlos and his team have really built something and the folks are flocking we went there as a family last night and actually ended up eating the food at hog river which tells you something about the effective nature of that economic development um, because there wasn't enough seats uh to eat outside at parkville market but we took our food and we went over to hog river and mama had a, a beer at hog river and i just thought to myself 
you know, for all of my cynicism and skepticism, dang it, it's working. Um, and it was really remarkable and fantastic. I wish that the sign for Parkville Market were a bit higher so yeah. you could see it highway and coming down the street because, wow, Hartford should be so proud that that food hall is there. So that's my first endorsement. My second one is for Playing On Air, uh, which is a radio show and podcast that um, uh, is short plays, short theater um, by the sort of preeminent playwrights, um, Playing On Air. Um, check them out. It airs on this station. I don't really know where it is right now, but in our <laughs> time schedule. But Claudia Catania is kind of a friend of ours, and we do we do run it somewhere. I think. Uh, I, I want to just double down on your Parkville Market endorsement, uh, but yeah, I don't think people are having any trouble finding it though. And uh, you know, if, if you go there tonight, <laughs> you are going to have trouble getting a parking space. Uh, all right, uh, Bill Usman, what have you got for us? Okay, I'm going to quickly do um, a little bit of sweet and sour. I'm going to start with the sour. It's the fourth season of Slow Burn, which is a podcast which delves into particular kind of uh, historical moments. And I think its real strength is it reveals things about these moments that maybe even if you were following them, you didn't realize. And the fourth season is about David Duke and specifically his multiple attempts to win actual political office and to, you know, kind of disguise his white supremacist past uh, while moving into positions of power. I think it's really, really excellent. It's slow burn season four, David Duke. And needless to say, I think it's got some lessons for the present day, although those are very understated in the show. And then uh, if you need a, 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 palate cleanser, uh, something a little sweeter. There's a nice five-part documentary series about the famous comedy club, The Comedy Store, which is on Showtime right now. It's really delightful. Um, it's got a you know panoply of uh, Hall of Fame comedians, funny moments, interesting moments. It's got a little bit of its dark side too, but I think it's really great, The Comedy Store on uh, Showtime. All right. Thanks for those. Uh, very quickly, i got to go fast here. Uh, Sam Hattleman is often on our show. He started a new magazine online. It's called Cut Break. That's www.cut-break.com. It is about the Connecticut music scene. Sam's it's The first issue is out. Sam's already getting excerpted in like hip-hop newsletters and stuff. So uh, salute to Sam, and he's an enterprising young guy, and he's... He's living the life right now. So check out Cut Break. Uh, you're going to find about find out about Connecticut musicians you don't know about. Thanks to Bill and Tanisha and Gene and uh, McPants. And we're gone. <laughs> <laughs>